Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Jane's intelligence unit and I'm joined on this episode by Brian Raymond, who runs the public sector business for Primer.ai, which is a tech company specializing in natural language processing and creating applications to do that for national security purposes. Brian, hello and welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Terry, thanks for having me. It's great to be here today. Excellent. Um, I, I didn't do you justice at all in that introduction, so I'll get you maybe to talk a little bit about your background and current sort of role at Primer. Thanks, Terry. That sounds great. Um, so my background really um, started at the CIA, and so I um, I left a political science PhD program for uh, for Langley. Spent a bunch of years um, both in Northern Virginia and in the Middle East, covering a variety of kind of CT and political related issues. From the agency, I moved down to um, the White House, where I served as a country director on uh, in the Obama administration on their National Security Council, covering um, Iraq and ISIS. Um, and then after that, left left government, um, spent a short stint in um, in investment banking, and then, as I like to say, I was rescued from investment banking by a former CIA colleague of mine who landed at Primer about four years ago. And um, small little San Francisco-based startup at the time, about thirty people, and um, had recently received an investment from Incutel, which is the venture capital arm of the um, U.S. intelligence community, um, which was really interested in Primer for what it was doing um, to structure and summarize vast amounts of, think of it like narrative text, right? So a news story, diplomatic cable, maybe an intelligence report, and the possibility that that, that helped. And so over the last four years, Primer has deepened its partnership with the, um, with the U.S. intelligence community, um, the defense community, as, as well as um, a number of allies. And our sweet spot is building tooling and platforms that ingest and process enormous volumes of unstructured text in English, Russian, Chinese, you know, multiple languages, and make it more useful for everyone from a strategic level analyst all the way down to um, tactical units um, out in the field. And so the, the nice thing about it is once you get great at the models, you can start stringing them together into bespoke pipelines and put them on the networks that the customers need and tailor them to specific workflows. But at the end of the day, you're still um, dealing with large volumes of text and making that useful for decision makers. And so that's um, that's our big focus at Primer. We're about uh, 150 people now, spanning five offices from the U.S., U.K., Middle East. We'll be opening an office in, um, in Singapore soon. And about three quarters of our business is in the um, intelligence and, um, and defense space. And I know, um, and we can come on to sort of talk a little bit about Primer and the capabilities you have and the work you're doing. But I wanted to touch first on actually uh, something you wrote recently and published um, in a blog post online talking about some of the current and emerging and I guess touching on some of the future national security threats that the US and allies face. And in particular, thinking about disinformation and the role that plays, I guess, in how the kind of threat picture is changing. But I wanted to get your thoughts first on you know, especially coming from the background you've come from and where you're sitting now, um, how do you view that current state of threats that national security organizations are facing? Well, this is the issue of our time. I mean, I grew up, you know, in like 9-11 generation and um, and counterterrorism um, was, you know, the dominant focus for the last 20 years. But really since um, Crimea in 2014 and especially since the 2016 presidential election, our adversaries, adversaries of the West, have had an enormous amount of success in this asymmetric gray zone type of competition in terms of eroding kind of the pillars of Western democracy, which is a shared understanding 
of our collective experience and um, and what and what is truth, right? It's cheap. You can do it efficiently. You can do it at scale now um, with a lot of the technologies that are coming online. And it's almost a perfect asymmetric tool against the West because uh, <laughs> because of the values that our governments have and the values that a lot of our adversaries do not have, which is a proclivity and a willingness to actively undermine a shared understanding and and truth and to do that with you know the arms of the state and so you hear this all the time when you look at the testimony from for example our commanders um, in the pacific and indo-paycom and and the threat they're facing from the prc or what the russians are still doing today as well as kind of other second tier actors this is a this is a big and growing problem that seems every year to snowball and so my expectation is that over the next two, three, five, ten years, we will need to reorganize, at least in the U.S. as well as within NATO, in order to um, to counter this more effectively than we're doing today, which is you know treading water at best. Yeah, I think it feels like we're not well geared. We're not operating the same way that our adversaries are. Do you think you know when you say that we'll have to reorganize? Do you see efforts towards that already happening, or do you think that's still lagging and that's something that actually we need to we need to do more on? Without directly criticizing a lot of the folks that are, <laughs> that are no, working yeah, on every, yeah. every day on this, I yeah. see a lot of the, I mean, the point that I made in my, in my article was that our playbook for fighting back largely mirrors the active measures working group that was stood up in the U.S. in the early 1980s to counter Soviet propaganda. And it's predicated on an interagency process to identify it and shine light on it. And, and look, that was incredibly effective. It brought Mikhail Gorbachev to the table. He actually told the KGB to stand down on a lot of their disinformation efforts um, in, in the latter half of the 1980s uh, because of the efficacy of, of that active measures working group on shining light on it. And after the fall of the Soviet Union, basically that playbook was frozen, right? And that, that became, you know, after Crimea happened, that was dusted off. You had the Global Engagement Center stand up at, um, at state. You had... Um, a lot of the responsibilities for this pushed down to SOCOM. Um, but, but really it was, you get an interagency group together, you, you identify it, you try and shine light on it in the public. And information moves a lot more quickly today. It's much more diffuse. You don't have you know, three you know, main television networks anymore. You have a multiplicity of different avenues. And now you have like memes. Like, could you even imagine memes in the 1980s or uh, <laughs> things like that? And how do you fight that, right? And so it requires an entirely different toolkit. And this is sort of the opportunity for us to step back and take a fresh look at how to counter this, not just from a U.S. perspective, but from U.S. and its allies, as well as from a government perspective and private sector coming together in order to counter it, uh, because this is probably not a problem that's solvable, you know, just by, with, and through um, U.S. government or Western government organizations. Do you think that the the threat is such, and especially with the grey zone activity that you described, that it's just difficult for government entities, uh, military, defence, etc., to anticipate how it's going to shift and change and what might pop up next? Especially when you say, you know, you you touch on memes. I mean, a meme can pop up and have a big impact in a certain location or place. Well, what you've seen today is um, kind of nascent efforts to bridge public-private partnerships around these fact-checking clearinghouses. Mm. Um, <laughs> Facebook has done a lot of work. I mean, they've been the subject of a hell of a lot of criticism, but they've also done a lot of work looking at the efficacy of different approaches for countering mis and disinformation, um, and have seen a lot of mixed results in particular on, on fact-checking. Um, what seems to be really important is counter-messaging 
um, whatever, you know, whatever that mis or disinformation is, uh, right at the start. We're getting at it right from the get-go um, to almost tamp it down before it becomes a brush fire. A brush fire turns into a wildfire. And so that's, um, you know, we had a nice article in, in Wired last fall, Wired Magazine last fall about like what we're doing with SOCOM and the missing disinformation. And, you know, our thesis is that you're going to need to be able to do three things. You're going to need to, one, detect bot amplified content online, right? Lots of great folks doing that today. You're going to need to be able to look at artificially generated text so synthetic text, and if it's not bot generated and if it's not bot amplified and it's just human troll farms, you're gonna be able to need to find it too. And the way to do that is through natural language processing. So AI at scale and map the information landscape in almost real time to understand what are new claims that are catching hold, who's, you know, who's saying them, um, what parties are involved, um, and so that you can give the folks um, that are responsible in, in the government and on these platforms a fighting chance at at least giving you know the recipients of those messages uh, you know some sort of truthful <laughs> counterpoint to what's being what's being said. And so, how that's implemented and how that's done, um, there's a lot of policy questions uh, that are going to need to be grappled with. Um, right now, the challenge is. How do you build the tooling so that you could even understand what is being said across the information landscape at the speed of relevance? Because right now it's days or weeks or months later that, that you end up seeing it. Yeah, no, that's it. And I think, you know, we've seen, I'm sure you've seen as well, examples where that speed has held up the efforts to then try and counter any of that kind of messaging, which is disinformation, et cetera. And, and the time it takes to put anything out, by that point, it's gone. You're on, you know, you're almost on to the next issue or, or yep. thing that's arisen so you know is there also a problem though in that let's say you, we get to that stage where we're much better at spotting it identifying it understanding and assessing this information as it comes out that actually then countering it is a massive problem um and and doing doing something to stop it doing something to push back against it is challenging and i almost want to say fighting fire with fire you know we can't necessarily go to the same place in terms of using information in the same way as some of our adversaries because well it'd be useful to get your thoughts on this do you think that we're more we're more sensitive to those kinds of things being exposed and being criticized for doing them than our adversaries might be yeah i mean the cost of being wrong right of pumping out factually untrue information um is um is incredibly high right and as it probably should be but look this is where um we have an opportunity to take a fresh look like right now for example if an ambassador or a military commander want a counter message each one of them has their own public affairs office that it has to go through and then it has to be coordinated <laughs> back in washington and then it has to go back out to the philippines or it has to go back out to singapore or japan we're not doing ourselves a lot of favor in terms mm -hmm. of, um, of streamlining the bureaucracy. Um, th these sorts of problems have been solved in other areas. But look, this is, um, this is probably as much a technology problem as it is um, an organization um, problem, a human organization problem. And so um, the, the, the bad news is that um, it's, it's, um, it's a huge problem. <laughs> the good news is that it's a problem of our own creation, so it's a problem that we can solve. That's something that like Sue Gordon likes to say is that you know, if we if we created it, we can solve it. And um, and in this case, um, I think that we can be inspired by if you know, even if we move away, what that active measures working group did back in the 80s. Um, we were totally helpless in the late 1970s encountering Soviet Soviet propaganda, but it was a small group that came together and said we need to move fast. Um, we need to move forcefully. 
um, but we also need to be correct. And um, yeah. and it ended up working. Um, now that doesn't mean that that template is what should be used today, but I think um, if we've solved it once, we can solve it again. Yeah, that's a really important point. And I think it's interesting what you say there about it being a technology problem more than a process issue or a you know an organizational issue, because I think in many ways that's almost easier to solve. Um, whereas yeah. trying to trying to realign processes or reorganize to try and counter a different threat is often something that takes a lot more time. Um, well, one of the great one of the biggest asymmetries here, Terry, is it's orders of magnitude cheaper to pollute the information environment with falsehoods mm -hmm. than it is to find um, find whatever has been put into the um, information environment that's polluting it, right? And mm -hmm. and to counter it, right? So it's it's far cheaper for the PRC and the Kremlin to pollute than it is for us to to, to clean up the uh, the oil spill, as it were, and so. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, I think that's the crux of the issue from a technology standpoint. Interesting. Yeah, no, indeed. Well, I think you've given some hints of hope there for us, at least in terms of that technology being able to help us um, in the future, um, which sort of leads me on to asking about Primer and maybe getting you to describe a bit more about the capabilities and um, the the technology you're developing at Primer, because I find it quite intriguing, some of the work you're doing, especially the things you're doing to create tools that will support analysts, intelligence analysts, um, in helping them get on top of large amounts of information and make sense of it and then actually use it in reports, etc. Um, so maybe you can talk us through some of some of the capabilities you're, you're building and developing there. Absolutely. Thanks, Terry. Um... Look, uh, there's an interesting um, study done um, a, a couple of years ago, which said that, which looked at um, a typical intelligence analyst covering kind of a second tier country that had a second tier in terms of the volume of reporting on that particular country. And it said that, look, in 1995, for that analyst to stay up to date on, on that country, probably have to read about 20,000 words a day. And by 2015, that had increased tenfold. And by 2025, they expected that to be in the millions of words per day. And so this isn't a problem. Uh, I mean, the intelligence community realizes this. Um, they're not dummies. And um, <laughs> they also realize they can't hire their way out of this problem, right? Mm -hmm. The only way out of this problem is to pair analysts with algorithms in creative ways to um, accelerate rote work and then to also um, uncover connections and insights that were buried in the data. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, so, you know, for us and like what, you know, our mission, how we think about it, um, it's really threefold. So one, um, the consequences of missing information is incredibly high for these, uh, these analysts. Um, uh, you know, there's lots of uh, professions, adjacent professions um, that, that we serve where they have to read a lot. But I mean, it's probably the highest for intelligence analysts if they miss one key report. Um, and so one, serving them in that domain Second, as I mentioned, you know, uh, identifying connections or insights that um, are kind of buried within the landscape. And then three, helping to clean the data or at least understand where there may be mis or disinformation as it's coming in. Um, what we're doing at a practical level, though, to kind of like lift the veil, um, three things. One, we're structuring all of the unstructured text that's coming in. So what does that mean? Um, you have a report come in and it mentions, you know, 10 people and it has a bunch of facts about those people and locations where they were and, you know, uh, people they work with and titles that they have. We're able to find all of that information and create that structure. Um, second, and this is something where folks' minds usually go when they think about AI, summarization, right? So we can um, summarize individual documents, you know, automatically cluster documents, write you an entire briefing memo about it. Um, and then third, um, passive monitoring. 
Um, so think indicators and warnings. So you, we work with analysts to train, to encode their knowledge into, um, into the base algorithms and then have those algorithms running against millions of documents a day to surface those that, um, that may contain indicators and warnings for issues that they care about. Um, going back to one of your past podcasts and some of the great work um, that's been done recently by Zachary Tyson Brown and Carmen Medina, mm -hmm. they made a point in a cipher brief post that, hey, they, um, you know, they've received some feedback that they should have um, talked a bit more about AI and open source, um, but that it would only, you know, manufacture the same sort of uninspiring type of um, um, type of analytical products that are being made today. Um, I think that's that's totally true, um, but it also misses the real revolution that's going on on the structure side, and this coincides with what Jane's is doing as well. Um, where, when I was an analyst, my job wasn't to summarize. Um, that was that was what I did as a briefer. I hated it. I had to wake up in the middle of the night and, and summarize. Um, right. But really, if you were thinking about um, you know sixty percent of the job or seventy percent of the job. It's where are the tanks, where are the people, where are the organizations, where are they going, who are they connected to, and drawing those connections. And that is still the exact same process today in 2021 as it was in 1945. Um, you, we call it the left screen, right screen workflow um, internally. I am, or if it's 1945, the left stack, right stack right work, workflow. I'm reading documents that are coming in over here. I'm gleaning insights, and then I'm recording those insights in some sort of knowledge graph over here. Yeah. Right. Um, what we're doing on the structure side is we're automating that jump. And so that we up in the workflow, you come in and now we've curated all that information and now it's ready for analysis. You know, where you're not spending 70 or 80% of your day pruning it, cleaning it, curating it, getting it ready for analysis. It's all ready for analysis. Um, an example here is, um, you know, there's, you know, there's been a lot written, a lot of ink spilled on the Obama administration decision-making around um, around Syria. At a certain point, there was a request made um, for the interagency to, to look at every time that we've supported, the U.S. has supported um, a foreign insurgency, to look at what happened before, um, what happened during, and whether or not it resulted in an outcome that was favorable for U.S. foreign policy objectives. And I remember that that took multitudes of people offline for weeks to curate that information. Um, what you know, where we're focused and, you know, others in the space are focused as uh, on, can we cluster all those relevant documents? Can we identify the types of events within those documents? Can we identify, you know, all the key entities and then string together all of that information? One, to get it ready for analysis, but then two, once you have those strings and once you have those timelines and you have all that information curated, you can start building models on top of that and start moving into the predictive realm. And so that's just, cost prohibitive today um, when everything is still artisanal and like hand curated. Um, but when you have machines doing a lot of this rote work that machines are great with, it can unlock time for humans to do what they're best at, which is being creative and thinking about second, third implications. I think that's really interesting because, you know, when we hear a lot about AI, about machine learning and about the tools that people are building to do intelligence work or support intelligence work, I think, you know, and and I'm, I'm sure this has been countered by many people but there is still i think a latent fear amongst analysts that they will be somehow put out of a job by some of these tools when you know and this is crops up on a number of our um, previous podcasts and in discussions i've had with other people but i think everyone's in agreement that none of the tools right now are at that level i mean i, I think of the 
of the three kind of capabilities you mentioned about um, the, the primary is developing and the second one that you mentioned there about producing reports and brief to be able to brief people, I think that's the one that would have those kinds of alarm bells ringing and all people raising an eyebrow and saying, well, hang on, that's that's what I do. That's my job. <laughs> Are you saying you're building a tool that's going to do my job for you, for me, but um, or rather for my boss and uh, make me redundant? But I, I think that's, you know, what you've said there is um, certainly what I've heard from people working in this area or building out these kinds of capabilities that it's not to replace analysts it is to free up their time so they can do more i guess more interesting things produce more um insightful reports and briefings off of the information that they that, that's out there rather than having to spend a lot of time sifting curating collating organizing their information or structuring it um which is hopefully what the tool can do for them um to what extent i guess is is that true for, from the, your perspective? Um, it's it's funny. Um, this comes up a lot, and mm -hmm. I would say that you know about about a quarter, uh, about a fifth to a quarter of Primer's headcount are former IC and DoD folks, and we have our fingerprints on everything, and we're building the tools kind of by with and through our customers. And um, and one of the things that gets us most excited is that we're building tools that automate away the work that we hated doing um, <laughs> when, we, when we when we were in the seat. I, I remember sitting in embassies as I was a briefer um, at 3 a.m. summarizing, you know, different cables. And I was like, this is horrible. Um, I, should, I should not I should be able to, to automate at least a chunk of this. So I don't have to do that because this is not high value add. Right. Um, what's high value add is once I have that information summarized and curated, think about, OK, what um, what is the ambassador or what is the co commanding general going to want to know about X, Y or Z and go and hunt all of that down and curate it? And so I actually have a deep, rich brief that I can deliver to a policymaker rather than just the what, right? I can go yeah. far beyond the what into the why, the so what and what next type questions, which quite, we just don't have enough time um, in the day to do. And we can integrate and dovetail these um, technologies really elegantly in, into the workflows. But I think, you know, stepping back here for a second, where all this is going and like where, you know, why does this matter? How does it fit into the bigger picture? It's it's fascinating, and um, that we have such a close partnership with various um, organizations that are doing a lot of great thinking on this. But across the intel space, across the defense space, and the private sector, but it's really going towards like having a single ground truth of what's going on in the world, and being able to automate as much as you can of the rote organization of that, so that you actually have kind of a terrain map of the information environment, the facts of what we know and what we don't know, um, doing all that curation of that um, at scale, almost in, uh, instantaneously, is you know what we're doing for analysts at the strategic level, but then um, down at the operational or the tactical level, you know we're we're doing a lot of work with the um, the Air Force today and others for JADC2 Joint All Domain Command and Control, which is really this notion of connecting every sensor with every service member. So that anyone can have whatever data that they need on demand to kind of understand, um, you know, the, the environment. And, you know, where that's going right now with the push to the cloud um, and the push to um, the infrastructure that's required that the Jake is doing um, right now, the, um, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Um, it's really to create the, um, the, the operating space um, or um the you know common operating picture for all the services all the intel analysts everything and so what what you're going to need on top of that is are these applications like what primer's doing 
or other fabulous, you know, uh, you know, competitors, um, not competitors, but um, providers in like the computer vision space or um, or folks that are, are turning on Mazent or imagery um, to crunch on all of that and then index it in almost real time so that you can actually keep track of what's going on in the world with the speed with which everything is moving. And um, and you know, for us, we, we occupy this little neighborhood of language, right? And being able to process, you know, internal communications, intelligence reports, open source to help contribute to, to that. But it's it's really exciting to kind of see that start to come together. This It sounds fantastic in many ways in the sense that I think, you know, we've both had the same experiences in the past where we've been working in analyst roles where you think, oh, wow, this is actually quite tedious um, because yeah. what I'm producing isn't very interesting. I want to get to those questions like the so what and the what next, which are the exciting questions that you want to work on and you want to be able to uh, explain to customers. But um, often it's the basic stuff that gets in the way or that takes up a lot of the time and you don't get to, the, to do the more interesting stuff. So I think anything that helps shortcut that process and get to those endpoints, which is really what, you know, that's what sort of my team at Jane specializes in, I think. And I can already imagine the faces of some of my colleagues and my teammates saying, you know, kind of lighting up saying, oh, wow, you mean you're going to help us do this quicker? Um, so I can see, I can definitely see the appeal of that. And um, and yeah, that that is a, an area that that is a, a massive need, I think, for analysts across the board in whatever roles, whether it's in intelligence or in other fields. Um, but in terms of the information that you're you're working with and the tools are working with, and you mentioned there, obviously, it's dealing with a lot of language. It's dealing with a lot of unstructured information. Are we moving forward, though, to a point where a lot of the certainly open source information that we're dealing with is also produced in a, in a more structured way by AI-led sort of systems or uh, tools, et cetera, you know, and I'm thinking in the in the sense of the way that, say, news reporting is going, for example, where in some ways the, there's more basic news uh, stories posted online or being pushed out and published, which are uh, automated in the way that they're produced. And so is that, so in a way, have you got kind of, um, I guess, machines dealing with information produced by machines? Um, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Is that where Some we're getting to? And, there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is is that where we're getting to? And and does that make it easier in some ways, or does it make it more challenging? This is this is a tough issue. Um, so the world was captivated last year by GPT three, at least um, the nerdy part of the world that we occupy, um, and it's uh, it's a language, you know, large parameter language model developed by OpenAI, Elon Musk's job, and. Um, it was incredible. You could put uh, you could put in, you know, just a little bit of text, and it would write you an entire article about it. It would dream all of it um, or hallucinate it, depending on which journalist you're talking to. And um, and it scared a lot of people. And OpenAI made the decision that they weren't going to open source it. So GPT two, its predecessor, they'd open sourced and um, and and you know thrown it out to the world and said, "Go make great things with this." And, and OpenAI made the decision, we're not going to do that. And they just gave, uh, I believe, Microsoft um, access to it. And then just a few journalists, and that's about it. During the last 12 months, um, you know, different developer groups have said, well, that looks like fun. Let's go, let's go build our own. And um, actually, a couple weeks ago, um, GPT-NEO was released, uh, a smaller version of GPT-3, but um, it was released into the wild. Um, now it's available to anyone that wants to download it and, and, and use it. And um, 
And what's different about this is that with GPT-2 and then earlier you know, language models, we're pretty good at, at training models to go find that synthetic text, right? Had certain tells that you could go train a model, feed in training data, and then go hunt for it and then identify it. Um, we're entering a realm now where it's almost impossible to discern what's synthetic and, and what's not, or we will be um, sooner than later. And so that's why getting into the message of what's being conveyed um, and understanding it um, at a natural language understanding um, kind of perspective is going to be absolutely critical um, because they won't have ticks or tells that, that you can pick up on um, from an information advantage type perspective. Um, but then also um, understanding, you know, not just a single message, but how our adversaries are potentially doing A-B testing on a population. So when it's cheap and you can generate an infinite amount of text for next to nothing, um, then you can take a marketing approach. And, um, you know, some of the reports that have come out about the manipulation that was done over the last several years, um, we know that the Russians are already doing A-B testing um, at a on a small scale on social media. Um, but with these, you know, large parameter language models, it's going to kick that into overdrive. And so um, I expect that, you know, the, 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 uh, <laughs> the curve is um, increasing at an increasing rate. Wow. Wow. And then I guess, uh, yeah, so you've sort of touched on there what's going to come next, but are there any other sort of developments that you see coming in, in your field or your area where you think they could have a national security uh, effect or any implications for us when we're looking at national security related issues? Um, on the, I've said a lot about bad news. I think on the good <laughs> side, um, some of the really exciting developments, um, you know, are, I think are, are in, kind of will stem from the infrastructure that's being built today. And so over the past decades, um, there's been a tight relationship among Five Eyes and NATO of information sharing. Um, we're moving now to a world where we're going to have shared clouds between um, between the Five Eyes, between NATO, between other allies. And um, with clouds and with large volumes of data on that, you'll be able to train models and you'll be able to share models and you'll be able to encode in those models um, the learnings and the expertise, not only of just you know your particular unit, but your broader organization, your broader service, and also your sister services, right? And so um, um, that that coupled with you know technology, we're developing, others are developing no code AI model um, labeling, training, and deployment platforms where you're going to cut out basically cutting out the right today. You have to pick up the phone, call someone to go get some labeled data. You have to call a data scientist to run the, the 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 training. You need to call a solutions architect to deploy those models. It's in, there's an enormous number of friction points in the process of actually using AI in the operational context. Um, we, along with others in the field, are just attacking all of those friction points, um, uh, you know, very aggressively to try and one um, make it much easier once you have those clouds and you have the data to do the model training and the model sharing. But then more importantly is that within a dynamic context, once you know a confrontation um, erupts and you learn that your model's not performing very well, you can have you can take it offline, you can retrain it in a half an hour or an hour and redeploy it, whereas today it takes weeks. Um, you know, wow. is 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 typical. And so that's that tightening up that OODA loop of 
of the models and that observe, orient, decide, act loop and nesting them within them so that they are truly operationally ready um, and can be readily retrained for, with a high degree of, of performance. That's um, that that is becoming unlocked with the infrastructure infrastructure that's being built today, not only in the US, but also abroad. It sounds incredible, and I think we're going to reach a point, I guess, or will we, will, well, will it creep up on us gradually, or will we reach a tipping point where all of a sudden we'll see a big shift? What's your sort of, I know that's a sort of hard question to answer, but what, what's your feeling on that? I think it'll be a slow drip, and we'll wake up and we'll say we're in an entirely new world, and we didn't even realize we, we crossed the boundary, um, because it's going to be incremental, but there is so much incredible innovation going on at so many different parts of the military and in the private sector um like you know we have partners at microsoft that are doing incredible work um on on creating that infrastructure and they're focused like a laser on on on, on um and enabling next generation ai applications like primer um other you know partners at palantir for example um doing doing the same um enabling you know work that we do uh, by curating the data, creating the infrastructure that's required and creating the UIs that are intuitive and easy to use so you don't need a PhD um, in order to go and actually do AI. That's um, that's where this is going. Where it's also going, and this is something I touched on a minute ago, but I really want to dig in here. It's this democratizing of AI and taking it out of the hands of, um, of you know, scientists really um, and putting it into the hands of the folks that are confronting these challenges every day so that they can go and automate things that are automatable and augment the things that they need augmentation on. And um, and that's, I think that's gonna be the big tipping point here is that when we make it easy enough and fast enough for um, the folks that are on the front lines to encode their tacit knowledge into, into these models and use them and lower those those costs, that's, that's when we're gonna kind of see a paradigm shift um, in, and really how we're pairing, you know, algorithms with analysts and operators. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I, I kind of almost envisioned that, you know, thinking about the human aspect of it, where we now have maybe that generational shift from, um, you know, previous generation to, I guess, what have been termed digital natives, et cetera, people who've grown up with yeah. some of the tools that we, you know, probably take for granted nowadays. Do you think at some point we'll, we'll have a generation that are kind of AI natives, essentially, that, Will have grown up with these tools from when they're young and, and are accustomed to using them in a way that we, we almost can't conceive of yet. Terry, I'd almost flip it around and say a lot of those folks are already here. Um, that generation mm. is already here and they're blocked right now. So they're wow. blocked by um, the infrastructure, they're mm. blocked by the data, um, they're blocked by thorny issues like ATOs and authority to operate and on classified systems and moving across domains. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and things that are just nightmarishly bureaucratic, but yeah. incredibly practical um, yeah. hindrances. And so with what General Grown has done at the Jake to reorient the Jake, um, what, you know, right now with their, um, you know, they have a 200, $250 million um, uh, solicitation out right now for data curation, help getting data ready to, to analyze what you have with Army, you have Project Convergence, you have Navy, Project Overmatch, and you have ABMS with the Air Force, mm. and supported by Kessel Run and MIT and, and other national labs. Um, what you're starting to have is kind of a critical mass. You have the you know the 700 page report by the National Security Commission on AI, which is going to shape a lot of policymaking 
over the coming years. Um, and you have messaging from the Biden administration that they're going to continue and amplify what was what had begun under the Trump administration on really investing in AI um, so that we can compete um, with our near peer adversaries. Um, this is happening. It's just that it, the world's not ready for it right now. Yeah, there's such a hunger, such an appetite across the services to do this. Um, but a lot of the practical uh, plumbing that's required in order to enable it is is being worked on right now. But once that's um, fixed and put into place, I think there's going to be a lot of pent up demand that's going to be met. And then that's going to have a spillover into other parts of services, which might not be as technically native um, that are going to want to come along as well. Interesting. So do you think there'll be sort of a first a first few kind of projects that or, or capabilities that will show exactly what's possible and then others w will follow along and say actually yeah we, we see that now we now need that and then yeah. that and then the organizational plumbing and the you know culture shifts and everything else we need to reorient the way organizations work now that that will follow along yeah and i think i think what what preston dunlap and um and and, and the team at the air force um, started with ABMS, what's continuing with what NORTHCOM is doing around JADC2, um, what the Army is doing with its various demonstrations. Um, it's developed, it's, people are convinced that this is, this is how we have to go. Now it's just a matter of like, how do we get there as quickly as possible, right? Right. And, um, and you know, folks like David Spurk, who's the Chief Data Officer at the Pentagon, talks a lot about um, work the department needs to do as well as work the department needs to do with its allies to get data ready and have a data uh, first mindset um, so that um, one, you can get the data you need to train, two, you can have the GPUs and the cloud infrastructure you need in order to train and run them. And then three, um, you empower the ground units who know the problems they need to solve to go pick up that tooling and go run with it. And um, and so I think like from a leadership perspective and from where they're going, um, it's going to like there's there's so much great work going on right now but it's it's in little pockets right but it's getting a lot of visibility folks are, are you know generally convinced and um you know i think what, what we should we should be looking at is the finalization of the jad c2 strategy work um that's going on right now um and once all the leaderships installed at the pentagon that strategy is codified um and you start having doctrine fall out of that then um, then I think that will kind of mark this turning point um, into this, you know, AI enabled and AI driven um, workforce that already knows that they want it. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I think um, for me personally, I'm thinking that the turning point is going to come when that 700 page port report you mentioned when I've got an AI tool that can summarize it for me. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have to read it myself. <laughs> um, Absolutely. <laughs> It's been great talking to you, Brian. I mean, uh, I have so many sort of pent up questions that I could, I could pepper you with, but um, most of those would reveal my own ignorance and uh, probably bore you in terms of the basic <laughs> nature of them. So um, I look forward to hearing more about the capability as it develops and to keeping in touch with you and, and finding out more about the work of uh, Primer and what you're involved in, but also seeing how a lot of these big initiatives develop and seeing how, you know, we collectively across the sort of national security space in public and private sector do come together, you know, as you talked about, to try and uh, counter some of these big threats that we're, we're facing and, and how they might develop in future. So, yes, yeah, exciting times ahead, I think. Terry, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to picking it back up again soon. That's great. Thanks, Brian.